Maybe you've been asked to be a champion for innovation, or perhaps you're the leader challenging others to innovate better. In this episode, how you can actually help new ideas get real traction. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 512. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. You have heard many times the conversation on this show about the importance of innovation and how even to begin and think about the innovation process. But what if you are inside an organization leading efforts at innovation and perhaps supporting those who are leading those efforts? Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert who is going to help us to support innovation more effectively in our organizations, and what to do to take the first step. I'm so pleased to welcome Tendai Vicky to the show today. He is an author, innovation consultant, and associate partner at Strategizer, helping large organizations innovate for the future while managing their core business. He's worked as a consultant for organizations like American Express, Standard Bank, Unilever, Airbus, Pearson, and many more. Tendai co-designed Pearson's product, Lifecycle, which is an innovation framework that won the Best Innovation Program at the Corporate Entrepreneur Awards in New York. He's been shortlisted for the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award and was named on the Thinkers 50 radar list for emerging management thinkers to watch. He's written three books based on his research and consulting experience, including Pirates in the Navy, The Corporate Startup, and The Lean Product Lifecycle. The Corporate Startup was awarded the CMI Management Book of the Year in Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And he's also a regular contributing writer for Forbes. Tendai, what a pleasure it is to meet you. Yeah, no, thank you for having me, Dave. Thank you. It's a, it's a real, real honor and, and pleasure to be here with you having this conversation. Well, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I've been following your work for a couple of years. And so it's really exciting to get to talk to you and to learn from you. And I, I, I mentioned in the introduction that you're a regular contributor to Forbes. And I actually wanted to ask you about one of the articles you've written for Forbes, and you have described it as one of your least popular articles. <laughs> the title, yeah. <laughs> you know which one I'm going to mention, the title is In Defense of Middle Managers Who Stifle Innovation. <laughs> and I've heard I you don't think people ever finish reading the whole title. <laughs> I think, I think they end it in defense of middle managers, and then they just click to the next thing. No, no one wants to read about middle managers stifling things, right? Um, exactly. And yet, ironically, perhaps, I read through so much of your work, and this article has such an important message of one of the obstacles that innovators tend to run into. And I'm wondering if you would share that message with us. Yeah, no. So it's, so it's, so it's really interesting, right? One of the bigger challenges that innovators tend to sort of stumble upon. And that this depends on where they sit in the organization most often, but they often want to work on innovation projects. And so they take it to whoever they report directly into. And that person is often a middle manager. And that middle manager just does not have bandwidth to support it. And so a lot of people that I've met have like loads of names for the middle management layer inside organizations. In one organization that were called the Blue Goo, the other organization that were called permafrost, uh. which is the place where all good ideas go to die. <laughs> and so that's a big, big challenge that innovators face dealing with middle management. But I've often find that 
there's a misunderstanding between, you know, the innovators themselves and what actually is happening to middle managers. Middle managers tend to be viewed as sort of ignorant MBAs who are just mostly concerned with succeeding in their own career and are not interested in, in, in innovation. And what most people don't realize is that behind the scenes, the person that the middle manager reports to, the CEO or the CFO, or who, or the head of the division in which they're in, in, in which they're working, is pressurizing the middle manager to deliver on quarterly revenue. And so, because the middle manager knows they're being driven by quarterly revenue and being rewarded and incentivized by that, then any conversations around innovation actually die. And so, I find that sometimes CEOs are not being authentic when they're talking about innovation. They're encouraging their teams to innovate, but then incentivizing and rewarding their middle managers through revenue from current products, you know? So the middle manager ends up looking like the bad guy or bad gal, but in reality, it's the top leadership that is sending a very different message behind the scenes uh, other than the, the, the excitement about innovation that they might be saying publicly. Exactly. So, you know, excitement about innovation is not enough. It's also important that we build structures that support that innovation and we incentivize our leaders, especially middle management leaders, to view innovation as a valuable part of what they're doing to the organization and what they'll be recognized and, and rewarded for. You also challenge innovators in your work to come to innovation with a certain sense of humility. And one of the things I've heard you say many times is that to, to watch out for some of these complexes that innovators take on. And in particular, you have the message, you're not Elon Musk <laughs> to innovators inside yes. large organizations. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah. The, the full message is, you're not Elon Musk, and you don't work in a company full of idiots. So that's, uh. that's 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 the full that that's the full message. Because it's interesting, right? Because entrepreneurship has become really kind of popular. It's part of our almost like our contemporary cultural zeitgeist, if you want to call it that. And what we tend to admire about entrepreneurs is their innovativeness, inventiveness, and ability to come up with crazy ideas. But we also admire their brash confidence, right? And we forget, especially when we're talking to intrapreneurs who are innovators working inside large organizations, that if they're going to follow uh, you know, an entrepreneur's lead, they should only take the innovativeness, inventiveness, and creativity, but they cannot adopt the brash confidence. Right? The thing that makes entrepreneurs actually successful is they have to take their innovativeness, inventiveness, their creativity, their passion for innovation, and combine that with the ability to build relationships with other people that they're working with inside the organization. This is something that an entrepreneur in a startup does not necessarily have to do. But if you're going to do innovation inside the large organization, the, your superpower, the thing that distinguishes you from the entrepreneur is political acumen. The, the really great innovators, the serial innovators are really great at building great relationships with other colleagues who are not necessarily working in innovation within, within, within their organization. I know one of the things you have a real passion for is helping innovators to get traction inside the organization. And one of the invitations you make is the value of discovering what else is going on in the organization, and in particular, what other innovators are up to inside a large organization. Mm. What is the value in spending the time to do that before just starting on the path of innovation? Yeah, so I've worked in a lot of companies, right? And I call the phenomenon little fires everywhere. One person starts an innovation lab, and then another one starts a training program. Then before you know it, somebody started a digital studio. And all these things are not interconnected with each other. And so 
it's really important that you don't become one of the people that's adding to that mess, right? And the reason why I say this is my concern, Dave, right, is that the innovators that I work with or coach day, you know, day to day is that they're authentic in seeking to have a positive impact on the organizations that they work for, that they're authentic in seeking to create value in seeking to create things that are useful. And so if you're just another one of those things and you haven't taken time to see what already exists in the organization, what challenges are they facing, where are all the landmines that are sort of stifling innovation at the moment? If you don't take time to, to do that because you're so eager to have a thing of your own, then you're not as likely to make success as you could have if you just take time to do some discovery and find, exact, find out exactly what's happening inside your organization. Because in doing that, you can create a unique place for yourself in the organization and start to deliver real value to the company. It, it relates back to what you said a moment ago about um, coming, yes, with the ideas and the creativity, but not coming with the arrogance necessarily. And uh, recognizing that there's a team that you, and 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 uh, you're not the smartest person in the room, right? Uh, it's really a team effort, and that that gets me thinking about one of the other things you wrote in Pirates in the Navy. You have a warning for innovators, and you write this: Sure, the CEO loves you, and sure your program is looking really great right now, but you need to understand that while this is necessary support, it's not enough for you to succeed it's probably less than 10% of what you'll need to succeed. When innovators feel that they have the support of the CEO, they think they can do whatever they want and ignore other stakeholders in the business. This is a huge mistake. That strikes me as something that's just such a key message for someone who's trying to affect change in the organization. Yeah. I mean, I mean, think about it. Even if you were the smartest person in the room, there are not enough hours in the day for you to do every single task necessary for an innovation to succeed right? Like you would have to kill yourself to, to do that. The truth about innovation is that innovation is a team sport. There's not a single innovation in the world that's ever been launched off the back of just a single individual. It's always been a collaborative effort. And it becomes even more difficult inside a large organization because no matter what you do, eventually someone in the organization who's not you is going to have to make a decision to give you resources, support your effort, so, for example, if you, if you are an innovation lab, and, and I've worked with several innovation labs, I remember when I was in South Africa once, really great innovation lab, they had 14 ideas that they'd come up with there that were really cool, but they couldn't convince anyone in the organization to support taking these to scale. They couldn't get sales support, they couldn't get technology support to build the stuff, and they couldn't even get further resources to build a bigger team. That's because... While you're working on these ideas, you're not doing the work of building the, the relationships you're going to need to then get the resources you actually need to scale. I've even met some brash innovators who will say, I don't need to build relationships. As soon as I find something that's going to work, the, the company will just spin it out. And I'm like, yeah, that's possible. But even creating a spin out <laughs> requires collaboration with the core business. You're not going to need the lawyers to come in, corporate finance to come in, right? Somebody's going to have to make a decision that we're going to create a whole new corporate structure around your idea. And those people are people that you have to collaborate with. And so if you're working as a large organization, it's inevitable. It doesn't matter how much support you have, whether you're the smartest person in the room or that you are Elon Musk, right? You will still need to collaborate with others to create something of value. Such an important call for relationships and building relationships, innovators. And the invitation you make to innovators is that in really getting traction is partnering with stakeholders and specifically 
you ask of people to look for those in the organization, those managers who are early adopters? And I'm wondering if you might walk us through what a early, who an early adopter is and what would be some of the indicators that they're the kind of person that an innovator would be looking to partner with to get traction. Yeah, so this one is a, is a lesson that I learned personally the hard way. When I was working at Pearson and we were trying to build the, the innovation process there, one of the early mistakes that I think we made was we spent a lot of time trying to socialize our framework and our toolbox to the entire organization. And what we were doing was we were walking around with PowerPoints, having meetings and present, doing presentations and, and speaking about the product life cycle and showing people stuff. And, you know, we thought the stuff that we we're doing made, made, made sense. But the thing about trying to go big bang like that and talking to everybody is that you lose the ability to actually have, have, have impact. And also, you spend a lot of time arguing with your detractors, people who are not interested in working with you. They suck up a lot of your energy. They take up a lot of your time. And so what I learned from that was that actually the best way to start an, uh, to start an innovation movement is to start small. Don't try and go big too early. Try and just find like early adopters within your organization. And early adopters are those individuals who, who feel really strongly that the company needs to innovate. So they have a problem and they feel that the problem is something that's important to solve. And that, and they've even sometimes tried to solve the problem themselves. They've tried to come up with hacks to try and do some sort of innovation. They've got budget and they've got a commitment. And I've found that in every single organization I've, uh, I've been in, there's at least a couple of leaders that are early adopters. That's why we also say begin with discovery because discovery allows you to find your early adopters. And then you just focus on your early adopters, ignore the detractors, right? Just say, okay, okay, we'll, we'll get to you later. Ignore your detractors, focus on your early adopters and help your early adopters succeed. Don't even force your early adopters to work on crazy innovations. Talk to your early adopters, find out the things that they're concerned about, things that are keeping them up at night, and then help them use the innovation process to solve those problems. Because if you help your early adopters succeed, those stories then start to create the momentum and gravity you need to bring everybody else to the movement. This strikes me as such a key point of being intentional, of, as you mentioned, setting aside the detractors and really zeroing on the people who are ready. I'm curious, when you think about the organizations you've worked with and helping innovators to identify early adopters, what is the language or the kinds of things that those early adopter managers inside an organization are saying that are good indicators that that might be the person that is the place to start. Yeah, so so there's a so there's a few characteristics there. You know, I kind of I kind of ad, I adapted them from Steve Blank's definition of an early adopter for an actual product or innovation. So the first thing is, you know, they they have the problem. So an early adopter leader would be saying things like, man, this company cannot keep going the way it's going. I know that we're making money right now, but we probably need to start thinking about launching some new products and services uh. to start creating some sort of new growth. So that's the kind of language they're using. And then they also recognize that, which is the second thing, right? They have the problem and they recognize that they have the problem. They, they kind of recognize that the company does not have enough innovation capabilities to, to succeed. So they'll be saying stuff like, yeah, I've just gone to the Lean Startup Conference or I've just been to the Agile 100 Conference and I've, and, you know, I've learned all these things. I'm hoping the organization can adopt these practices. They may have even tried 
themselves to implement some of the things. Maybe they brought in a, you know, a, a trainer from strategizer or they, they, they launched a hackathon or maybe they did an idea jam or something, right. To try and get innovation off the ground and they've been struggling with it. And so in identifying and finding who those people are, you can then start to help them succeed first because that's an open door right there. They're waiting. They're willing to give you a chance, even if you don't have a fully formed process yet. They're willing to give you a chance to you know, co-create that process with them. And that's who you're really looking for in the early stages because it really allows you to get that early win. And early wins are really important to, to maintain the momentum of an innovation movement. Yeah, and I want to ask you about early wins uh, here in a moment. Uh, but first, you know, two things there you, you said I think are so critical on the early adopters is, first of all, that you're listening for someone who's done some movement already. They've had some ideas. Maybe they've tried something. But I'm also yeah. hearing you say you're listening for someone who's like maybe a little frustrated, maybe a little stressed, um, maybe not entirely on board with everything that the company's doing, ironically. And that tension actually is an opportunity and an indicator that that's someone who's willing to maybe take a chance, do something a little differently, has got a pain point that you might be able to help with. Exactly. I mean, they're not an early adopter if they haven't been trying to do something themselves, right? The one way, the one way we know that people are really concerned about a problem is if they're trying to solve it themselves in some sort of way. And then they, but they're not like coming up with the right solution. So they're looking for help and, and they're looking for support. And, and that looking for help and looking for support and their willingness to let you try stuff is really what gives you the chance to innovate. And the reason why I say this is that it's really important because we often ask for, for chances to innovate from people that don't want to give us the chance, right? Mm -hmm. And we really pay attention to those detractors. And, and I think it's always better to find the, the people that are willing to give us a chance and, 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 and allow us to fail and, and fail with us, and learn with us and, 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 and rebuild with us. And that's what the early adopter leader can really do for you. You use the term in your work as well, relatable heroes. And yeah. I was reading another part of Pirates in the Navy, and you write this, I've worked in teams that spend hours designing the best-looking PowerPoint slides. Then they go on a sort of a political campaign of talks and meetings with stakeholders. During one such campaign, a skeptical stakeholder remarked that our team must not have had much to do because we had apparently invested a lot of time in our beautiful slide deck presentation. Ouch. Yeah. And I, I read that and I thought, wow, you know, it is interesting how as I'm thinking about situations I've heard of too, that oftentimes people think about making the good presentation and making the references to what Google's done and what Amazon's done and what Apple's done and all of the, uh, the stories out there that are in the popular media, but they miss the part about relatable heroes. Tell me about mm. that. Yeah. So the relatable hero really, really matters. And that's where the early win becomes really important. Because if you walk around with a PowerPoint presentation that says, look at what Google is doing, look at what Facebook is doing, and look at what Amazon is doing, you leave yourself open to the comment that we're not Google, Amazon, or Facebook. And that's a way for people to resist the things that you're actually saying. And so a lot of innovation teams that I've worked with, when they're walking around with their great PowerPoint presentation on their political campaign, they get asked questions like, where have you ever seen that work? And they'll talk about Amazon and Google and they'll go, okay, we're not them. And then they'll, and then they'll say, have you ever seen that work in this company? And that's where things start to become difficult because if you don't get an early win, and that's why we say work with an early adopter, make sure you get an early win, help them succeed. And as soon as you get, as soon as you become successful, like the full statement is get an early win, then celebrate like crazy in public. 
And the reason why we say celebrate like crazy in, in public is we want to take that early win and use that story to talk about how innovation is succeeding within our organization. Because the power of storytelling really exists when people can see themselves in the protagonist, when they can see themselves in the hero, uh, then, the, then the power of storytelling really works. If you can't recognize yourself in the hero, then the story is a little bit distanced from you. And so then storytelling is, is not as effective. But, but, but if you can say to the company and to the leaders that we worked with Team X and Team X became successful, we could do the same thing for you. That becomes really powerful. And I think in the book, Scaling Excellence, there's a story in there about Claudia Kochka and the work she did at PNG, where she first started off by helping uh, the Mr. Clean brand and helping the Mr. Clean brand become really successful. And only after she had become successful with that Mr. Clean brand and she was able to tell that story, did she then start to see more people get drawn to her design thinking movement. And that's really the kind of thing that we're talking about here for people to actually do. And it comes right back to what you said about early adopters, right? When it, the early adopter is inside the organization, you've had a win, you've solved a problem. All of a sudden, you have a story that's relatable, not just a, okay, someone else in our industry might have done something like this at some point. It's real. People can see themselves in that story. Exactly. And that's the, fu- that's the fundamental role of why we work with early adopters. Early adopters are the launch pad. That's, that's where we get the momentum to bring in the rest of the organization to our movement. And the reason why they're a good launchpad is because they allow us to create relatable stories. You gave the advice a moment ago to celebrate like crazy. What does that look like when it's done well? So celebrate like crazy looks like, like people might even go, oh, you guys are really overdoing this uh, <laughs> one thing you've done well. It looks like video interviews with the early adopter telling stories about how you helped them you writing blog posts um, on the company website, you hosting a webinar or a fireside chat, inviting the organization to watch you interview that early adopter. I've even seen people take their early adopters to an external conference, right? Uh And get interviewed by someone like me or Eric Reese or someone like that, right? To talk about the work that they did and then bring that external validation back to the organization as a way to show that, that, that you're doing really well. Uh, so smart. all of these things are really great ways to create momentum and create and, and sort of create an energy around the work that you're doing. But like I always say, celebrate like crazy, but don't get carried away. There's still more work to do, right? Uh, yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I pulled a quote, another one from Pirates in the Navy, and you write, don't forget who you are. You're still a pirate in the Navy. The reason you're telling the story of your early wins is to gain credibility in your company so you can go on to the next stage. You're not doing it to become famous. Remember to always keep your eye on the prize. You know, several lessons there, of course. One of them, though, is the term and the title of your book, Pirates in the Navy. Tell me about just what that mindset's like, because that's a challenging role to have within an organization. Yeah, I mean, the role of the innovator is a contradiction. Like you, you, you're basically, the day you accept that job, you've just become a paradox. Like you've become a person whose job is to tell a machine that's designed to execute an existing business model to say, hey, can we, you also need to spend part of your time exploring new opportunities. So you're stuck in this paradox of you're being asked to do things that are groundbreaking, but at the same time, it's really hard to do it within an organization that's kind of, you know, institutionalized with bureaucracy in it. And so what we often say is, don't try and act like a pirate or a buccaneer of, of, of some kind. 
Instead, you need to think of yourself as a different kind of pirate, a pirate that we call a privateer. And a privateer is a pirate that's, got, that's been given a commission by a specific group of leaders to go out into the world and explore opportunities and do their piracy work. And those leaders care about their success and are willing to celebrate that success when it happens. And so it is in building that kind of bridge that you become successful as a pirate in the Navy. And your early win is not a victory. It's almost like it's, you, you've just won the first battle, right? And so what we don't want is to declare victory too soon. We want to actually then use that momentum from that early win to then start to build those relationships that allow us to get permission to do more things. Because the moment we get permission to do more things, now we're a movement, right? Yeah. So, so act more like a privateer and a little less like a pirate. The people who you see inside organizations that really do a wonderful job of taking that early win in transitioning it to the next step and to go to the next stage. What's different about them than the people who bask in the glow of the wind too long? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the people who, who are really successful at leveraging their early wins into a movement are people who recognize what the job is, right? So one of the questions that I often get asked, for example, Dave, is what's the difference between creating innovations and creating innovators, right? And I often say that the difference is that in one, you're focused on just getting your products out to market. So you'll do whatever it takes, pull political favors here, get somebody to help you out and navigate that through the organization so that you can get the thing you want that makes you look like a hero. Whereas the person who's interested in creating innovators will say that every time an innovation team I'm working with runs into a problem within the organization, I'm not only going to solve that problem for that innovation team, but I'm going to solve the problem in such a way that future innovation teams don't run into that same problem again. Uh. Right. And that's the distinction between people who celebrate their wins too long and people who really know what the task at hand is. The task at hand is we're trying to make innovation a repeatable process within our organization. And so we need to shift our focus every now and again to make sure we're building roads and pathways that other people can use even after we're no longer within the organization. Tendai, this is so helpful. Uh, I know so many folks who are thinking about innovation inside the organizations, but those who support innovators um, are really going to benefit a lot from this. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've written a number of books. Uh, the, the one we've been zeroing in on are lessons from pirates in the Navy. So I'm going to be linking to that in the episode notes and in this week's weekly leadership guide for those of you who'd like to dive in. If you are an innovator or supporting innovators in your organization, it's a must read, uh, something that'll be a great blueprint for you going forward. Uh, Tendai, before I let you go, um, I, I do want to ask you, uh, so much about of leadership is about learning and growth and also mm. sometimes changing our minds. And you have been going around the world you give keynote presentations, teaching organizations about innovation. You consult to organizations. You've done tremendous research on this. As you've been doing this over the last year or two, what have you changed your mind on? Yeah, so at the beginning of my career, I mean, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I used to believe that just training innovation teams was enough. So if you trained an innovation team on business model design, running experiments, that was enough. Like, and, and I did that with so much energy. It was like the focus of my work. And after a while, I realized that all the people that I'm training on all these processes can't ever do them once they get back to work. 
And that was the moment when my mind changed. And so now I am actually less interested. I still think it's important work, but I'm less interested in whether or not the teams are getting trained and skilled up in terms of how to do innovation. That's not our problem. Our problem is actually that they won't be able to use the skills anyway, even if they have them within the organizations that they're going to step into. And that's what shifted my thinking towards really tackling this question about how do we create innovators versus just how do we create innovations. What has that led you to do differently now than you were doing when you started the consulting work? So now I focus a lot of my work, especially in the early stages of an innovation movement, in conversations with leaders and trying to help find those early adopter leaders that can support the teams, right, in doing their work. Whereas before, I was really happy, like, I would be brought in to do a workshop. I'd be like, thank you. It's just fantastic. Who are the teams? And then I'd just go off and, and, and work with the teams. And what was interesting, right, what was paradoxical was even the leaders that brought me in to train their teams would then turn around and stifle those same teams, right, uh, around innovation. And wow. so I learned that I always have to have a dual conversation, one with the leaders and the other one with the teams that I'm working with. Tendai Vicky is an associate partner at Strategizer and the author of Pirates in the Navy, as well as several other books. Tendai, thank you so much for your wisdom and your work. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's been a pleasure. If you know someone who's an innovation leader, I'd encourage you to pass along this conversation to them. Tendai and I thank you in advance if you do. In addition, I'd recommend four other episodes that if you are thinking about innovation or this conversation has been useful to you, I'd encourage you to check out. One of them is episode 418, The Way to Nurture New Ideas. My guest on that episode was Safi Bacall. Safi is the author of the book Loon Shots. It is a fabulous exploration into the history of innovation in organizations. I learned so much in the book that I had no idea about, about organizations and government and business and how they've handled innovation well and also not over the years, and some of the key principles for leaders to know about how to innovate well. It's a wonderful complement to this. Again, that's episode 418. I'd also recommend episode 430, How to Start Seeing Around Corners. My guest on that episode was Columbia business professor Rita McGrath. Uh, Rita is a leader in this space. Uh, just has a wonderful message for us, backed by solid research, on how to start thinking about and even predicting the future. And it turns out that if you're willing to discipline yourself as a leader to start paying attention to some of the key data points that are out there and available, you can begin to start seeing around corners, as she calls it. And even something like COVID, a lot of us have said in the last year or so, wow, this is unprecedented and unexpected. And yes, it was unexpected in the month and in the moment it happened. But of course, scientists, government officials have been predicting something like COVID for many, many years. And you can begin to start to see the data points and the trends for what's going to happen in your organization and industry so often The information is there if we are willing to look at it, and Rita's episode 430 is a wonderful primer on how to begin that process as a leader. Also, I'd recommend two of Tendai's colleagues at Strategizer, one of them, uh, episode 470, How to Build an Invincible Company with Alex Osterwalder. We talked about some of the myths around innovation and what leaders do that doesn't work around innovation, um, and how, of course, to build a company that really 
withstands the test of time. Uh, he's also the creator of Business Model Generation, a wonderful resource that I know has been used by many of you in our audience. And then finally, I recommend episode 476, How to Pivot Quickly. My guest on that episode was Steve Blank. He is the father, really, of the lean startup movement. We talked about how organizations can use some of the lean uh, startup principles in order to pivot and make change. And of course, so much about innovation there as well. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And there is a category for innovation, of course, and many other conversations there as well. If you have not yet set up your free membership, you're missing out on all the resources in there, including my interview notes. I've uh, recorded all the things I asked Tendai, also some of the questions I didn't get to in our conversation today, plus quotes from his book, Pirates in the Navy. All of those you can find inside the episode notes in the free membership, along with interview notes from many past episodes, plus access to my weekly leadership guide, my own personal library, many free audio courses inside the free membership, and lots more. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. You'll be off and running in just a few moments and have full access to the entire library that I've aired since 2011, searchable by topic. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Lisa Feldman Barrett to the show. She is one of the top neuroscientists in the world. She's going to be helping us discover more about our brains, the biology behind them, and how we can learn better, plus how we can support learning on our teams. Join me for that. Have a wonderful week and see you next Monday.